Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 39, verse 11, through the remainder of the chapter. Jeremiah 39, verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebzardan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him, and do to him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. So Nebzardan, the captain of the guard, sent Neb Shazman, Rabsaris, Nargel, Sharzir, Ramag, and all the king of Babylon's chief officers. And they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to Gedlah, the son of Achim, the son of Shaphan, that he should take him home. So he dwelt among the people. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Go speak to Abed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon this city for adversity and not for good, and they shall be performed in that day before you. But I will deliver you in that day, says the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely deliver you, and you shall not fall by the sword. But your life shall be as a prize to you, because you have put your trust in me, says the Lord. Thank you, Harold. Sorry to do that to you. <clears throat> that passage will come into play here in a little bit. <clears throat> but I want to I want to uh, begin with the obvious. You hear it all the time. So we need to talk about it a little bit today. And uh I don't usually uh, try to compare America, American politics, to uh, scriptural history um, unless there are principles, things that we can draw from that will apply to us today. I, we really try to preserve this pulpit for gospel preaching and, and um, the application of it. Sometimes that warrants um, application as, as citizens of this country and so forth. This is one of those days where it'll touch on that. We hear it all the time, we talk about it all the time, that America's in decline, um, that, that the country's not what it used to be. Uh, I hear people say, I don't recognize my country anymore. Um, uh, it's been said that this uh, generation of young people now is the first generation that won't have it as good as their parents, however you define good. Uh, we, we hear this a lot. Sometimes we ourselves say it. We certainly recognize uh, from a Christian worldview that there have been some changes in recent history in our country, um, both economically and, and morally and, and socially, I guess also, um, that uh, have been alarming to us. I think they're, they're more alarming perhaps to our older population uh, because they have uh, a richer understanding of our history maybe even a deeper grasp of it, and they've experienced more of, of American history and, and have been able to trace and measure 
where we've come in a, in a longer lifespan. And, um, and so uh, for them, you know, some things are harder to see even than, than the rest of us. But, you know, I've, I've heard uh, stories of schools assembling, especially for prayer, and uh, using McGuffey readers to learn to read and, and Scripture being constant in the exercises of those readings. Uh, I've heard of, of how boys carried pocket knives to school and, and could pull them out and clean their nails or uh, cut a piece of paper or whatever, and nobody thought anything of that. And uh, they, could, they could get in scraps in the playground and after school in the back alleys and, and wouldn't think of pulling a knife. They'd duke it out with a fist, but wouldn't think of pulling it a knife. I've heard, I've heard about that. I've even heard from an acquaintance of mine, a preaching colleague of mine, of days when him and his friends would bring their shotguns to school and put them in the school lockers on special days when they had plans to go hunting afterwards. And the principal would say, you're going hunting, boys? What are you going to hunt today? And he'd wish them good luck as they walked out the door of the school up into the hills to hunt together after school. That's unfathomable to our young people to hear such things. It's unfathomable, unfathomable to all of us, especially the older generations, to hear of school shootings and similar such things. And so we're forced to deal with some of the things that are going on from a Christian context. And these things truly are, in my estimation, the consequences of unbelief in our nation. I don't think we can get away from that moral underpinning of Scripture, of, of the Bible, and of the authority of God in our nation and the respect for faith. Many Christians are, are afraid of what the future holds. I think many citizens are. But many Christians in particular are, are fearful. And uh, sometimes it's dismissed with a shrug of the shoulders or a spreading of the hands, like, well, what are we going to do? Or it's, it's met with pessimism or complaining. But none of that helps matters. And I want to deal with today for a few minutes of what God-fearing people should do when they perceive that their nation is in decline as a whole. What are some things that can be done? And uh, when, the, when the public perception of people of faith is not favorable uh, and, and is growing in unpopularity. First, though, before I do that, I just want to take a moment and do something we, we maybe fail to do because we tend to come up to a pulpit or teach and, and explain how bad things are. And, and I myself fail sometimes in, in my own children's hearing to talk about the great things that are still a part of our nation, that are still the principles and foundation of our nation. I want to mention a few of those to us today so that you don't perceive this as a prophecy of doom and gloom or in, for the sake of trying to offer hope sound like there's no hope. I think that there are some great things that we should bring out that often get overshadowed by the, the negative talk. It is only in America, only in America, that people of such diverse religious and ethnic backgrounds, which divide and terrorize most parts of the world, can dwell together and worship 
albeit separate buildings, on the same street and dwell together and enjoy the same protections under the principle of freedom and the rule of law, except in the United States of America. It's an exception in the world. That's a marvel to many. And we should not forget how powerful that is, that we can still do that in our nation. America's gone farther, arguably, in history than any other society in establishing human rights or the equality of rights. For example, slavery has existed in virtually every culture, but no country in history has expended more treasure and more blood in an effort to eradicate it than the United States of America. Women's rights have greatly progressed from the founding of our nation and are still progressing, not without challenges and difficulties. They're still progressing. Laborers' rights have been and are still able to be defended, not without difficulty, as many of us have experienced in our workplaces. But our system of government allows for these things to be argued out by the people and put into policy and law to enhance our freedom. It just doesn't always fall our way sometimes. While racism is still an unsettled problem in America, this country has made strenuous efforts to identify it and remove it, and to remove discrimination of all sorts and provide opportunity for all and justice for all. Formal walls of separation between ethnicities have all, been, all but been torn down. And where they still exist, they do so at the risk of public scorn. Concerning everyday life, America is full of people who, for the most part, are cooperative, helpful, thankful, and attentive to each other. I'm glad to live in the state of Ohio. I've been around other parts of the United States. And not every place is as friendly as Ohio, but still people are attentive to one another. And if there is someone in trouble, there will be people there to help you. That's a tremendous uh, testimony to our citizenry. Most Americans have no problem interacting with people of different socioeconomic levels. The rich and the poor often will, will shake hands and respect each other for accomplishments and hard work. The hardworking farmer is not seen as necessarily more valued or less by a corporate person. And, and these types of, of, of barriers are especially seen in the Lord's church as being broken down and put aside as we welcome each other from all different walks and all different socioeconomic levels. Americans are uniquely optimistic. Optimistic. Obnoxiously so to some foreigners, we've been told. <laughs> Obnoxiously so. But we see the bright side of things. We're looking to innovate, change, improve, invent, always. Some people don't understand us. But that comes from being born into this free society where we can flourish and dream dreams and, and pursue them. We're a generous people. And we've given our resources to improve the quality of life around the world more than any other nation in history. We've shared our wealth. Many of these things I've mentioned have been written by first-generation immigrants, in fact. 
Sometimes we who have been here multi-generationally have forgotten just what it is that our um, ancestors have, have come into as immigrants. And But those first-generation immigrants often remind us. I hear it a lot, personally, not only in readings. But Dinesh D'Souza, in uh, their work, What's So Great About America, wrote that American life as it is lived today is the best life that our world has to offer. Now, that's an opinion, but I like this second part. Not only does it afford the good life, but it fosters good lives. I think that's true. I think that we have the, not only the freedom, but the ability in our nation to live lives worthy of living. To have good accounts at the end of our lives. Christian or not, people that have contributed and helped to the cause of mankind. It's a tremendous testimony. But we must also admit that in a free society, freedom will frequently be used badly. It'll be abused, won't it? How often do we have to say, hey, freedom's not free, you know? And we're not without the rule of law, of course. By definition, freedom uh, involves the ability to choose whether to do good or evil, to behave nobly or to behave basely, not without consequences. When a majority or a large portion of the society begins to act basely, or when our civil government enacts into laws support for base behavior. This ushers in a great challenge to the citizens who are God's people. We cannot expect either that God would sit idly by and allow this to happen to a nation like ours, which I know He cares deeply about. He cares deeply about people. But there have been great things accomplished through our people here in this nation. I know he cares deeply. I don't expect him to sit idly by and let us go any more than I expect us to. And I don't believe God expects the church to sit idly by while it's happening. I can't find that, can't see that anywhere. In the interactions between people of faith and their civil governments in the Scripture, the spreading of the hands, the shrugging of the shoulders, it's absent. In the Scriptures, God's passionate about people. He wants people to be saved. He wants His goodwill toward men and the peace that Jesus Christ brought to go into all the world. He wants us to be praying for those in, in leadership positions, for authorities and kings, so that we may lead, as Paul wrote to Timothy, quiet and peaceable lives. Yes, under persecution, sometimes the message of the Gospel goes deeper and it goes further but it can flourish in a free society where we are free to go talk to our neighbors and those whose lives are empty and void of hope and fill their lives. And I can do that day after day after day without fear of being imprisoned or beheaded. And so this is a great, great difference uh, between the United States and other countries. It's also a great, great challenge to us when we sit around and we observe, hey, there's some declining morality going on at large here. What can I do about it? Well, what do we do about it? Shall we accept defeat? I'm afraid some have. I'm afraid some have. 
I've felt like that myself before. It's in God's control. Well, nothing I'm going to be able to do about it now. I've, I've had those thoughts and feelings. Shall we become bitter Christians without hope, as if there's, there's no hope for ourselves? Shall we live in fear? Shall we disparage our children and bring our complaints before them and darken their hope-lit faces? Those little joyous faces, thinking about what they want to do with their lives? May it not be said that the church, God's people, holding the message of hope, the light of the world, may it not be said that we are those who are actually spreading the message of darkness in our nation when we need to be shining brightly as a city set on a hill. In fact, as things become darker, what happens with light as it shines? Are we not drawn to it? I wanted to use the illustration, but it's not dark out right now, of, of what just what we do when the lights are all shut out, it's pitch black, and there's just a little flickering candle maybe burning over in a corner on a little table over here. Everybody's eyes would instantly be drawn to it. We would see that one glimmer of light over there. So imagine that for now. Maybe sometime we'll do that because it's a powerful illustration of what happens when light is shined or shown in a world of darkness. But I think that we can see from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others in the Scripture some things that can be done when it's recognized that a nation is in decline in some ways at least. The faithful will respond as if the nation depends on you. The faithful will respond as if the nation depends on you. As if souls depended on you, lives depended on you, who are distraught because you know that there is life in Christ and you, you know the living God and you've, you've put your faith in Him and He hasn't let you down and you've You've lived your life on His principles and you've seen the goodness and the blessing it's brought into your life. You've received the testimony of Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. You've studied the Scriptures to see whether these things are so. And you look around and we ought to act as if people are depending upon us. It ought to look like a fight or flight instinct. Because that's exactly what's at stake. I think it looks like Thomas Burnett Jr., who while being held hostage on board United Flight 93 on 9-11-2001, and also a counterpart of his, Todd Beamer, who was heard over an open line saying, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Burnett told his spouse over the phone, there's three of us who are going to do something about it. Beamer said, let's roll. A stewardess was boiling hot water. We're in a side cockpit to do what she could do to stop these men from overthrowing their lives. Perhaps you know how the story turns out. The, the plane went down over the fields of Pennsylvania, but the plan to kill hundreds I believe 44 died on that flight, but the plan to kill hundreds was thwarted by those who stood up and said, we've got to do something. Lives are at stake here. I'm willing to, to risk mine to do something. 
Or you could point out these four young men who rushed and subdued this terrorist aboard the French train, which just happened on August 24th, three of which were Americans, held up as hero, heroes. They watched a man start shooting and slashing and, and instantly, with, with the instinct of, of to fight rather than flight, charged and subdued this person. Or you've heard even most recently, as October 1st, the, the heroic behavior of Chris Mintz, who rushed this Umpqua Community College shooter, took seven shots to his body, lived. Tell the story. But he said, somebody's got to do something. I believe that that's the attitude God's people need to have right now, not an attitude of defeat. I don't know what we can do for the whole nation. I know where I can start with me. I want to encourage you that you can have an effect where you are today, certainly. And we ought to be able to see some things when we look at people who were true to what they believed. They were true to what they believed and they reacted when they saw times of trouble, did the right thing, and risked all. First of all, let's, let's take a look at that. Remain true to what you believe. Now, how could this have something to do with Jeremiah 31? Well, let's turn there. Jeremiah chapter 31. I want you to see how a promise is made through Jeremiah, the principles of which would apply to him, but the covenant that he speaks of would be applying to us today, a new covenant. He said through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I'll write it in their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. There will be a day coming that I make a covenant with the house of Israel and with Judah, and that house the Apostle Paul has graciously revealed to us is all of those of faith in the promise of God to bring salvation to those who believe. That the church is the Israel of God, if you will, as Paul presented to us. That is we. This covenant is with we who believe. And he said I'm, there's going to be a difference in this covenant relationship. I'm not going to etch this on stone and on tablets. I'm going to impact them so deeply through the sending of my Son that I'm going to etch it in their minds and on their hearts. And those who are called by my name won't need to be taught, know the Lord. If they're mine, they'll already know. It won't be a matter of raising up children to know the Lord the people who come to me will have already been taught my covenant relationship. They shall know the Lord and I'll forgive their sins and their iniquities I'll remember no more. There'll be a different nature to this thing. We won't be growing up in a Jewish state to know the Lord. When you know the Lord, it'll be because you as a Jew or a Gentile have heard the gospel. You've obeyed the gospel. And your soul has been secured 
by the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when you by your faith have been baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection and united together with Him in the likeness of His death. Therefore, being raised with Him and certainly living a new life, as Paul put in Romans chapter 6, raised to a newness of life, freed from sin, and to live to God. There'll be a difference because this isn't going to be a part of the covenant that I made with your fathers in Egypt. This is going to be much more impactful. So, what does that have to do with the bold statement there? Remain true to what you believe. If you are a Christian, and you have obeyed the Gospel, and you're in covenant with Christ, your soul is secured eternally. Yes, conditionally, if you remain faithful, of course. But today, if you have desire to be in covenant relationship with God, and you've obeyed the Gospel, your soul is secured. There is a place reserved for you. And we are people not to be of fear, but of love, because we have security in the love of God, our Savior. Now, when you know that and you understand that, how does that impact your life? When times of trouble come and you start thinking about, well, what will my friends think of me? Well, what's going to happen if I step out and do this? Will I be put in jail? You might, but you know what you're going to say. You're going to start echoing the words of the Lord when He said, do not fear those who can destroy your body. Fear Him who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. He is the one you're going to answer to. Don't be found having received the praises of men and denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Be found approved of God when that day comes for you to pass from this life into the next life or if He should happen to come back while we yet remain. Ebed Malik, in the Scripture reading, and in four other cases, in Jeremiah and in the, the Rechabites in Jeremiah, and with Ebed-Melech, and with another later in the book of Jeremiah, there's four cases where God specifically speaks to these people in all of this chaos. And when the nation, and He says, all of the men of Judah and their women have gone astray, still with this all-inclusive language, He comes and He speaks to Jeremiah. And he says, I'll deliver you through this. And he speaks to Ebed-Melech, who we didn't get in the Scripture reading, but lifted Jeremiah out of the dungeon, went to the king, an Ethiopian man. Get this, an Ethiopian eunuch under the king. Echoing Acts chapter 8. I love it. I wonder if, I wonder if the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8 was inspired by the story. He goes into King Zedekiah, or actually out to the gate where he was sitting, and approaches him and he says, they've been evil to Jeremiah, I want to get him out. And the king says, better take 30 men with you, but go ahead and get him out of there. And God sees this from heaven. He sees this. And he said, I want you to go to Ebed-Melech, and I want you to tell him that your life will be treasured. I'll spare you through this. I think about him, I think about the Rechabites, a family that Jeremiah invited into the temple to have a gathering of fellowship and to tell them, God sees your righteousness. So while Jeremiah the prophet is going into the world and preaching doom to sinful nations, 
He's also going to individuals and saying, God sees you. Remain faithful. Remain. He sees your actions. You're preserved in covenant with Him. And I want to encourage you first of all to be fearless when people begin to speak evil of you and act unfavorably toward you. Secondly, speak truth about God no matter what it means to your life. Go to Jeremiah chapter 20 with me. Jeremiah chapter 20. This is right after Pashur, the priest, struck Jeremiah and put him in the stocks and in the prison. And while he's there, Jeremiah calls out to the Lord in verse 7, O Lord, You induced me and You persuaded me. You're stronger than I and have prevailed. I'm in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, Violence and plunder! Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more of in his name. Have you ever had those feelings or thoughts? I'm just not going to mention God anymore. Young people in classes, while they're being teamed up on, have had those thoughts and feelings. I'm just not going to say anything anymore. I'm not going to say anything on Facebook. I'm not going to say anything in a text message. I'm not going to say They have to deal with this. And you do too, I know. I'm just not going to say anything anymore. Jeremiah said, I'm not going to speak anymore in his name. In the middle of verse 9, he says, But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. I heard many mocking fear on every side. That's what Pashur and others were saying. Oh, you're bringing a message of fear, 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 Jeremiah. You're a fear monger, Jeremiah. He said, they're mocking me, saying, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we'll report it. All my acquaintances watched from my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be induced. Then we'll prevail against him and we'll take our revenge on him. Wow. My acquaintances? Let me remind you of something that I think is a, a takeaway for you today. So per perch up. The church is the institution which is to provide moral direction for the people amongst which they live. The church is. Government authorities are established by God to keep order, to keep peace, to reward good and punish evil, Paul said. But sometimes they can get it wrong, can't they? Sometimes they can get it wrong. Though we should participate, I believe, strongly more so as I grow older and, and have this uh, perception, we should participate in the shaping of public policy. That would mean voting, rallying, speaking, being a part of grassroots types of movements and helping however we can to get the message of God out. We should remember that human governments are not supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth. I cannot rely upon the leaders of the United States of America to be the pillar and ground of the truth. God has given that to you and I. You and I are carrying that torch. The government is not supposed to preach the gospel of hope to the community. God's people are. And so in times of trouble, 
I believe he sets us forth as a watchman, like he did in Ezekiel chapter 3, to be a watchman and to speak truth no matter what. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, God said to Ezekiel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, and he shall die in his iniquity, but you've delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you've not given him warning, he shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I'll require at your hand." Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the, righteousness, or, uh, that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live because he took warning, and you have delivered your soul. I think I get the message there, don't you? God's people, not just the preachers here, guys. This is God's people. All of them were supposed to be talking to one another. But to Ezekiel specifically, he's given a personal responsibility as a God-fearing man here. You send the warning, or I'll consider you part of the problem. Well, it might cost me my life. It might cost me some friendships. It might cost me some insults. The Hebrew writer said in chapter 12, to endure like Christ endured when he was looking up, upward to the cross, to the glory that was set before him. And he said, by the way, you haven't even endured the bloodshed yet. Striving against sin. You know, his audience hadn't been receiving persecution to bloodshed at that time in which they were living. He said, buck up. Come on. It gets worse than this. And to you I say, come on, it gets worse than this. It gets worse than this. We're fielding complaints, criticisms, insults. It gets worse. If we're afraid now, how are we ever going to be able to change minds and turn people toward a fearless hope in God? We haven't resisted the bloodshed yet, at least in our nation, although it is happening around the world for sure. Now we can speak by words, and you're thinking, I'm not good with words. We can speak louder sometimes with example, can we not? But the two have to work together. I think about yesterday when a group from this church moved a woman who was in need, who did not have anyone to help her, and we were called upon by an acquaintance of hers from West Virginia. And a group here rallied together, went and helped this woman move. It had such an impact on her that she shared with us. And even two movers who came and helped us move, two professional movers helped us move with this move, one of them said, where's your church? This is tremendous. I want to be a part of that church. Can I get directions to the church for worship? And all of those who were there were blessed. And I say that to say this. Okay, well, not a one of those people will speak an evil word against Christ and His church probably in their lifetime. If the seeds that were planted do not sprout forth fruit 
unto salvation with those who are not believers in the midst. If they do not, those same people will have a really hard time cursing the church. So I want you to think about, sometimes we just can't save everybody, but you can make it awfully hard for people to bring a false accusation against a Christian by leading a Christian life. The fact of the matter is you probably will turn some people to Christ by your commitment, by your covenant relationship, by your faithfulness. Jesus walked up on the hill of the skulls. Maybe He passed a few of those skulls on Golgotha on the way to the spot where He was crucified. And He was tormented. His soul, His beautiful, perfect soul was tormented for us. Some blessed Him along the way and He said, oh, oh no, worry about you. <laughs> blessed are you. You get ready for your life and your battle with this. For if men hate me, they're going to hate you. I had allotted uh, to read from Matthew chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. I won't because of time, but I want you to make a note of that. Jesus Christ speaks, sounds like He's speaking to us right now. He who endures to the end will be saved. Let's just leave it at that. He who endures to the end will be saved. Fearless faith is required today. And in that dialogue he had there, he said, do not fear them, those who are bringing accusations, persecution against you, doing and saying all kinds of evil against you. They're doing it against me. He said, there's nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. In other words, I see my people. I see my people. If you can't change one person's mind about the truth of God and the Gospel in the world, if you can't change one person's mind, well, you're pretty good company, first of all. You'll have somebody to talk to when you get to heaven. His name's Noah. But if you can't change one person's mind, I see you. You're my child. So I want to encourage you to look upward, be hopeful, and be people of action with your own lives, in your own ways, ministering the Gospel of God to the world. Your own families, friendships, co-workers, teammates, etc. These are the people that you can influence to see the truth of the Gospel of God. I hope some of this was helpful to you. And I hope that you'll obey the Gospel if you haven't yet. We have an opportunity right now. <clears throat> We're extending an invitation to you to be baptized for the remission of your sins or to begin a, a journey of study today to come and, and ask for the prayers of the church together, which is powerful, to repent of your ways and become more of a light to the world around us. Let's stand and sing this song. Love.